Welcome to Teacher Guy, your one-stop location for continuing education. Hi, I'm Don. Welcome to Teacher Guy. This is my very first podcast, and um, I just wanted to create a forum or a place to go for first-year teachers or teachers who have been in the profession for maybe just a couple of years to sort of gain new perspectives or just to hear a reflective thought on um, different approaches to the classroom or maybe gain an idea or two uh, that they might be able to bring into their own classroom. Um, as an experienced teacher of 11 years in the Connecticut public school system, I functioned as, of course, a teacher, but additionally a, a team leader or a department head and additionally uh, an instructional coach where I was able to collaborate with peers on a very regular basis to uh, help support classrooms across the curriculum in a high school setting. Of course, this day and age, a lot of what that looks like uh, is sitting around a table looking at statistics. Maybe you and your department have gathered together to sort of analyze what um, what your next goals should be as a department or which aspects of the curriculum need to be sort of revamped. Um, and I've had a lot of experience looking at that data and being able to break that down and perhaps put it into language that people from a variety of departments uh, would be able to sort of apply to their own use. Much of this podcast, of course, comes from the perspective of an English teacher. But if you're not an English teacher, here's an opportunity to sort of glean an, a, a glimpse into uh, another person's classroom, um, supporting the skills that you and your district um, are addressing regularly uh, with the curriculum as it's been bestowed upon you or as you're in the midst of writing it, um, and the national standards and state standards that are, of course, being sort of integrated into all formal assessments, of course, the SAT um, and a variety of others. So why don't we move into our first segment, Classroom Management Strategies. All right, class has started. Elaine, Elaine, put your cell phone away. George, sit. Class is, yes, thank you. Look, we've all been there. We all have our classroom distractions. You know the ones. The ones who will take their cell phone out and begin planning Candy Crush in the middle of class. Or perhaps the kids that still think it's funny to go up to your whiteboard and draw something inappropriate. I mean, how many of those little tags can you possibly erase in the course of a day? Yes, and then there's the other form of distraction, the kids who will perhaps fall asleep in your class or attempt to. Of course, your vigilant eye prevents that from happening as much as possible. But of course, as always, your administrator walks into the door when something is at its worst. I can't tell you how many times I missed people chewing gum and the administrator would walk into the building or excuse me, walk into the into the classroom and point one or two students out and collect their gum right from them in front of me. Of course, that takes power away from me, but um, it also acts as a reminder to you that you have to always remain vigilant. One of the things that I found one of, to be extremely effective in sort of controlling the distractions in class, particularly if they're distractions but still are capable of performing, which should be all of your students, 
we're supposed to look at all students and and look at their strengths and be able to sort of differentiate for those strengths as well as their weaknesses on a daily basis. But one of my favorite strategies uh, to sort of control this is to empower the students. Make the distraction a leader. In my classroom, collaboration was a daily routine. Usually, I would introduce an idea, um, model it for them, and ultimately break the class into groups where they were collaborating to discover something or create something. And that being said, here's your perfect opportunity. Earlier in the year, or even if it's you know January and you want to switch things up, make sure that in collaborative groups, your students are given a role. The roles uh, could be a variety of things. I think of, of course, your leader, your secretary, or the person who is able to sort of collect the data of the group discussion, or perhaps um, highlight material if you're reading something and you need the kids to get notes or get ideas to be able to use for something later. Um, but you have other roles as well. Timekeeper, you know, the person who's supposed to keep the, the group on task and aware of how much time they have left. And, of course, uh, discussion leaders as well. But if you give that distraction, that student that, that, that regularly, regularly breaks down the classroom dynamic, if you give that distraction a leadership role within a smaller group setting, you have empowered that student to show you, peers, what else they're capable of and what else they stand for other than perhaps that joke that they throw off every single day or that water bottle that they decide to flip every other day. They're more than that. They can be given the power to lead. So oftentimes I would give that distraction the leadership role and I would bestow upon them the, the idea that their job is to get the group from A to B and work with the group to get them from A to B. How they do that will surprise you. Give them that opportunity and go around the room looking from group to group and support that student as well as your others, of course, but support that student in their role and, and give them complimentary um, comments uh, praising the positives as you do so. When they're given the power, they will start to focus. And I've seen that time and time again. One of my favorite uh, experiences, or excuse me, one of the, those moments that sort of sticks out for me over uh, my 11 years teaching was one student who was the regular napper. And um, he sat in the front row um, of my classroom at that time. And he always insisted, every time I called, out, called him out on his behavior, um, he always insisted that he was napping because he already got it. He understood it he, and so forth. Well, of course, you know, his, his writing wasn't always stellar, but it was, it was, it was readable and it, it showed promise. Um, his reading, you know, when he did it, he, his comprehension levels were, were through the roof. However, there's more to the English classroom or to any classroom than just being able to spit back information, as we all know. So I took an opportunity in collaborative groups to give him a leadership role. And it was one of the first times that he came to me after the class and said, hey, I was really uh, awake the whole time. And um, thanks, thanks a lot for giving me a chance to, to show my peers what I was able to do. 
now I'm paraphrasing, but he did come up to me and thank me for that opportunity. Now, that's not going to happen every single time, but it was one of those moments that I'm going to be able to cherish forever simply because I gave him a little bit of power. And then he gave it back and empowered me as a teacher to be able to support other students who are sometimes a distraction for one reason or another and be able to move them forward like we're supposed to. Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man Our best and most valued acquisitions have been obtained either from our contemporaries or from those who have preceded us in the field of thought and discovery. We have all either begged, borrowed, or stolen. We have reaped where others have sown. And that which others have sown, we have gathered. It must in truth be said, though it may not accord well with self-conscious individuality and self-conceit, that no possible native force of character and no depth of wealth and originality can lift a man into absolute independence of his fellow men, and no generation of men can be independent of the preceding generation. The brotherhood and interdependence of mankind are guarded and defended at all points. Nevertheless, the title of my lecture is eminently descriptive of a class and is, moreover, a fit and convenient one for my purpose in illustrating the idea which I have in view. Self-made men are the men who, under peculiar difficulties and without the ordinary helps of favoring circumstances, have attained knowledge, usefulness, power, and position, and have learned from themselves the best uses to which life can be put in this world, and in the exercises of these uses to build up worthy character. They are the men who owe little or nothing to birth, relationship, or friendly surroundings, to wealth inherited, or to early approved means of education, who are what they are, without the aid of peculiar sense indebted to themselves for themselves. If they have traveled far, they have made the road on which they have traveled. If they have ascended high, they have built their own ladder. Such men as these, whether found in one position or another, whether in the college or in the factory, whether professors or plowmen, whether Caucasian or Indian, whether Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-African, are self-made men and are entitled to a certain measure of respect for their success and for proving to the world the grandest possibilities of human nature, of whatever variety of race or color. Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Men. All right, now it's time for a lesson idea. One of my favorite novels to teach with, to use as a vehicle for exploration of self, identity, and art, was The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. One of the activities that I regularly used uh, year to year whenever I used this novel was to get kids and students to reflect upon identity and what they bring sort of in judgment when they see others. 
And oftentimes, if it's a senior year or a junior year that you're using this novel, uh, many of the students say, well, you know, I... Uh, I see what I see, and uh, I can I can tell what a person is like just by looking at them, and I, usually I'm right. Well, here's an opportunity to sort of reflect on that. So just very briefly, I want to give you a little excerpt from The Picture of Dorian Gray and sort of explain to you what I did and how it might um, transfer to other classes or other classrooms um, in terms of an activity that is fully appropriate uh, for seniors in high school as well as freshmen, sophomores, and juniors. Those who find ugly meanings in beautiful things are corrupt, without being charming. This is a fault. Those who find beautiful meanings in beautiful things are the cultivated. For these, there is hope. They are the elect to whom beautiful things mean only beauty. There is no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well written or badly written. That is all. And to define is to limit. So there are two things that come to mind after uh, reading those excerpts. The first is that cynicism can go a long way, and bringing in a negative perspective to something that has beauty and only being able to see the negative or find fault, in fact, reflects something on the individual. Likewise, the other uh, section of that uh, reading, to define is to limit, shows the power of constraint and being limited in one's perspective, and making judgment based upon a limited perspective. And so, one exercise that I used regularly in my classroom was to get students to look at themselves and look at their peers, make judgments, and be able to, in a very um, organized fashion, of course, have a discussion about those judgments and those expectations. And so what I would do, particularly in this day and age, it's very easy to do, I had students go home and take pictures on their cell phone that they could print out. Take pictures of themselves. One, um, just a natural pose. Maybe they're sitting on the couch. Maybe they're, uh, they set it up so they have a nice little backdrop or what have you. But just give a nice smile for the camera kind of pose. The second one, they were free to sort of explore. And as long as it was appropriate, when they brought it in, I would, of course, peruse them, uh, giving back any that were inappropriate. Um, but take the ones uh, that showed a huge range in personality between the two photos. And I had the students mount their photos, the A and the B. And following that, I would have all students go around with a notebook in hand and make judgment calls about the different photos and what they would surmise the personality of the character being portrayed, not the person they knew, but the face, the character, the projection. Students would come in uh, to the group discussion with these judgments and be able to laugh about them, of course, but in a very respectful environment, make those judgments, explain why they made those judgments, and then come back and say, well, the reality is I know this person to be these other things these other positive things. And I would steer conversation to be, you know, positive. But what they got out of that was being able to see that what we see is defined by how we project it and what we take from something, what we judge something else to be, comes from a multitude of experience and interactions with others uh, that are sometimes based on um, learned experience, but oftentimes based upon ignorance. 
using this kind of activity as a precursor for the picture of Dorian Gray was a wonderful way to get students to connect to the idea of identity and what you see is not often what you what you actually get. And that makes it more personal right off the bat. This kind of activity could be adapted and used in a multitude of different classroom environments. A social studies lesson, for example, might not look at the picture or a portrait but instead uh, look at perhaps the public persona of a historical of an historical figure and then look at the reality behind it. And oftentimes we can see sort of that juxtaposed discrepancy between what is presented and what the reality is behind it. But experience can inform and ignorance can also hold people back from progressing. Uh, another idea that comes to mind is the application of this kind of activity in a music classroom. And again, instead of looking at the written word, perhaps you're listening to music. And you can hear um, a piece, present a piece, have them write their judgments down based upon what they hear, based upon their experiences with music, and be able to sort of make an evaluation as to what the, the mood of that music is. And in the end, do a little bit of research and be able to see where the artist, him or herself, had come from in the composition. So you could once again sort of isolate discrepancies, but also reward students who um, were able to see, see perhaps um, author's intent or composer's intent in this case um, behind the music. And so that's today's lesson idea. And now a segment I like to call Best Practice. Sounds dreary, doesn't it? Well, here's the reality. We, as educators, are regularly called upon to have students think critically. It is one of the most important buzzwords that has that been around for decades, um, but the push for it in terms of the standardized assessment um, in um, the classroom today requires educators to have a firm understanding of a combination of two things. Uh, when I was in um, my master's program, we discussed Bloom's taxonomy. Um, things have sort of evolved, and you might also hear about Webb's depth of, depths of knowledge. Either way, however you approach it, the fact of the matter is you want your students to be working at all levels almost all of the time. In terms of Bloom's, you're starting on the knowledge base, you move up to comprehension, application, analysis, and as it has switched in recent years, um, evaluation, and finally synthesis. The higher up you are on the ladder, the more skills need to be applied in order to make something new. And so one uh, best practice in the classroom is to always be thinking about that ladder, or in Webb's depth of knowledge case, think about the second half of the pie chart on the left. These are the synthesis questions, the evaluation questions, and the analytical questions. Those top three rungs, or those that, that, that half of the uh, depths of knowledge uh, pie chart, requires us to make sure our students reach it. How do you do that? You always feed the questions for students to respond to. Never settle for a student to just throw it back to you, give you that answer again, just to rephrase what the previous student said. Ask them a prodding question that requires them to walk up the ladder. 
My favorite way of doing that is just to insert the word why. Why do you think that? Why did you come to that conclusion? What about your experience allows you to think that way? And ultimately push them up to evaluation to make those judgment calls as well. Make sure if a student makes a contribution, you paraphrase for other students to sort of understand whatever that contribution was and be able to come back and say, okay, not only why did you come to that conclusion, but what do you think about that conclusion? Pose that to the class. Get the class involved in that discussion. And in the best case scenario, you're taking that concept and you are breaking students into perhaps groups or maybe they're working independently to create their own, that higher level, that highest level of Bloom's taxonomy um, or that last quarter in that pie chart from uh, Webb's depths of knowledge, but be able to create their own. Maybe they create their own poem. Maybe they write their own story. Maybe they compose their own song. Maybe they write a, a, a document that establishes a law. Um, from their own imagination, but be able to back up the reasoning behind it and be able to support why they made the choices they made. If you're doing that at all times, if you're always asking why, if you're always encouraging your students to create, you're doing the right things and you're getting them ready to be able to enter uh, the world of critical thinkers um, in a world that requires people to make those evaluations on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, that just about wraps her all up. Thank you for listening. I hope you gained something new, a different perspective, or something to reflect upon as you go into your classroom tomorrow. Um, and if not, and you just enjoyed the rambling, that's great too. If you enjoyed today's show and you would like to hear more content, I ask for your support. Uh, check me out on Facebook at Teacher Guy and uh, join the group. And you'll be able to sort of offer uh, your, your responses, your reflections, and open a forum for anybody interested. Um, of course, if I made any grammatical errors, the, it is not necessary to, uh, to point that out. But I'd also like to take an opportunity to self-promote. Uh, I recently finished up an audiobook production for a novel entitled The Last Girl by Danny Lopez. And if you're interested in the noir genre, think The Usual Suspects or Maltese Falcon or Dark City or Memento, I think you should really check out this book. Um, it's available again on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. It's called The Last Girl by Danny Lopez, and it is voiced by yours truly. Well, thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and I look forward to making more. Thanks again. I'm Teacher Guy. <laughs>